Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. This afternoon we may again come together to praise and glorify God's name. We welcome visitors and guests who are joining us to worship our great and glorious God. May you also be enriched by the preaching of his word and join in the praise of him who made you. May the preaching this afternoon lead our hearts and minds to reflect on the need we have for a saviour and redeemer and God's glorious provision for us by sending his only son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Consistory has the following announcements. The congregation is reminded that there will be an opportunity to meet and greet Reverend and Mrs. Tahart after this service. Wards 2, 4 and 6 are invited to remain behind this afternoon. <coughs> Reverend Tim and Sister Alana Sla have arrived with attestations from the Canadian Reformed Church of Ancaster. We welcome this family into our congregation and look forward to their arrival on the mission field in PNG, which is expected to be the 28th of this month, the Lord willing. We farewell our sister Serena Bolhouse, who has requested an attestation to the Chilliwack Canadian Reformed Church, and we wish her the Lord's blessing in her new congregation. And this afternoon, the worship service will be led by Reverend Tahart, Minister of our sister church in Melville. Before we commence the worship service, let us sing together from Psalm 51, verse 4.
Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. Please rise and let's begin our worship together. Having gathered together as God's people, let us lift up our hearts unto the Lord, and we confess together that our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Amen. And receive God's greeting, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's sing together from a book of praise from hymn 5, hymn 5, verse 1, 3, and 4, and after this we'll continue standing for the singing of hymn 1. times and places let's profess our faith in and we'll do so with the Apostles Creed by singing hymn one
see that on our liturgy sheet we had the singing of hymn one and then hymn 52 as well, but we'll just uh, leave it there with the singing of hymn one as is our normal practice. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, in our singing to you this afternoon, we have already uh, acknowledged that you are indeed a holy God. Yes, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Lord, even as we sing these songs, our hearts are lifted up to your throne. To your throne where you are indeed seated in majesty, in purity, yes, in holiness. And then, Father, as we reflect on these things, it teaches us just how small we are, how finite, but also how unholy we are. And like Isaiah exclaimed in dismay so many years ago, we too resound with those words, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. But thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are Heavenly God and Father. Wash and cleanse us through the blood of your dear Son, Jesus Christ. You purify us by your Holy Spirit. And so that you look upon us as holy. What a wonderful blessing this is. How beautiful it is to, to reflect on and to recognize, yes, it seems too good to be true. Especially, Lord, in those times when, when we're confronted with the fact that we are in and of ourselves unholy. When we experience stubborn sin in our lives. When we cry out, create in me a clean heart, O Lord. And when we know that we should be crying this out, but we're not crying it as, as passionately as we ought. But Father, we thank you that you direct us to the gospel of grace, to the gospel of forgiveness, to the miracle of renewing, being renewed in our hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. And that's, Lord, what we seek to hear from again this afternoon. And so that we might indeed drink from the fountains of your grace that we might indeed be refreshed with the assurance of pardon that we might be stimulated motivated to living in Christ keeping in step with your Holy Spirit and eager to grow in holiness yes even as you are holy and so Lord we pray that this afternoon's service will be a blessing in that way. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In the preaching of the Heidelberg Catechism here in Southern River, I come up to Laws at 41, and so I was asked to preach on this, which has to do with the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. In connection with this, we're going to read from two passages of Scripture. First of all, from Ephesians 5, and then we'll turn back in our Bibles to Matthew 5. First of all, then, from Ephesians 5, verse 1 through to 21. 
Ephesians 5, verse 1 through to 21. Now, of course, I am aware that verse 22 and onwards speak about uh, the relationship between husbands and wives, which has everything to do with the seventh commandment or so. Um, in this particular sermon, we won't be uh, really focused so much on marriage, but on purity. And that's why we'll be looking at the first 21 verses. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. And therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So far from Ephesians 5, let us now turn to Matthew 5. Just a few verses. Matthew 5, verse 27 to 30. This is part of the Lord Jesus Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell.
Let's now turn to Laws F41 of the Catechism. Laws F41, page 556 in your Book of Praise. What does the seventh commandment teach us? That all unchastity is cursed by God. We must therefore detest it from the heart and live chaste and disciplined lives both within and outside of holy marriage. Does God in this commandment forbid nothing more than adultery and similar shameful sins? Since we, body and soul, are temples of the Holy Spirit, it is God's will that we keep ourselves pure and holy. Therefore he forbids all unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may entice us to unchastity. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, create in me a pure heart, O God. This was the cry of King David in Psalm 51 verse 10, after he was confronted with the sin of adultery with Bathsheba. Wash me, he cried. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and, and cleanse me from my sin. And then he begged, purge me. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Psalm 51 resonates with us, because that cry to God for a pure heart is a cry that every Christian will pray as he or she is confronted with their sin. But many of us, for many of us, it is especially sexual sin that convicts us of how great our sin and misery really is. And how desperately we need not only to be forgiven, but to be made new by the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18 tells us that every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But sexual immorality, but the sexual immoral, immoral person sins against his own body. Sexual sin is a deep sin with deep consequences for ourselves, for others, and for our relationship with God. And the reason for this is that the sin of adultery and sexual sin is more than just a sinful act. Adultery and all sexual sin is the fruit of a sinful allegiance. It stems from a heart that has lost its first love. It stems from a heart that has lost its love not just for the husband or the wife of one's youth, but even more, it stems from a heart that has lost its love for God. And ultimately, this is what makes sexual sin so bad. And that is what should make us hate it and flee from it more and more. And that's what should make us cry out louder and louder, create in me a pure heart, O God. And it's these things I wish to preach to you this afternoon. And turning to Laws of 41, the Catechism, with a special emphasis 
on Ephesians chapter 5 and on Matthew 5. I preach God's word to you under this heading. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Create in me a pure heart, O God. I have two points. First, stubborn sin. And second, hope for holiness. First of all, stubborn sin. When it comes to lust, and to sexual sin, our Lord Jesus Christ gives some very strong advice, or teaching. It's more than just advice, it's instruction. In Matthew chapter 5. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. But is sexual sin really that bad? Is it really so serious that if your right eye, that is your best eye, or your right hand, that is your best hand, causes you to sin, that you should tear it out, that you should cut it off, that you should throw it away? What is it about sexual sin that calls for such drastic measures? And there's something I just want to make very clear first of all right now. And that is that although the, the Bible warns us very strongly about sexual sin, the Bible speaks very highly about sexual desire. Sexual desire is good. It's not sin. Right sexual desire, that is. So the Song of Solomon, for example, rejoices in the love between a man and a woman. And it is also because God created us with sexual desires, and He created this, that He also said at the end that, that this was something that was good. In the beginning, in Genesis chapter 2, when the Lord God had only created the man, but not the woman, he wants the man, that is Adam, to realize that something was missing. And so the Lord brought the animals to the man so that the man might name them. But for Adam, Genesis 2 verse 20 says, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now that word helper or companion, it's an important one here. Because when the Lord created the man and the woman, and he gave the woman to the man, he did not create the woman to be no more than a, than a sexual partner for the man. He did not create the woman simply to meet Adam's sexual desires. Nor did he simply create her as a woman that she might have children. But rather God created them, male and female, to be different. So that they might be joined to one another. And so that they might complement one another. Genesis chapter 1, the Lord God has said, let us make man after our image, after our likeness. And then it says in Genesis 1 verse 27 and 28, and so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. <coughs> Male and female, he created them and God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. 
And so it was as male and female that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. And it was also as male and as female that Adam and Eve were to reflect that image, and so that, and our catechism students should know this because we've been learning Laws 03 this week, so that together they might rightly know God their Creator, heartily love Him and live with Him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify Him. And what God intended for Adam and Eve, that they might reflect His image as male and female, even as husband and wife, is what God intended to be the norm for all people. And this is why Genesis 2 verse 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now this does not mean that those of you who are unmarried here today, that, that you are less as a result in any respect. Oh no. To the contrary, the Apostle Paul, he considered his own singleness to be a gift. You do not need a husband. You do not need a wife to be complete. Because we are blessed to find our full satisfaction in Jesus Christ alone. It's important you always remember that. Nevertheless, the Bible teaches us that there is something unique and something special in the fact that we have been created as male and female. And there's something unique and something special about the way that God gives the woman to the man in marriage. And it was God's intention from the beginning that it is in the marriage between a man and a woman that sexual desire is to be acted upon in a good and a right and a holy manner. And it is in marriage, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 14 says, sorry, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 4 says, it's in marriage that the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And in that context, the love that a husband shows his wife and the love that a wife shows to a husband, it is good, it is right, and it is holy. It is a love that is intimate. It's also a love that is private. It is a love that is exclusive. But that's not, the way, but that's not where things stand today. The fall into sin has done something terrible to sexual desire. The fall into sin has turned that which God created to be good and wholesome and beautiful into something that is used for all that is bad and destructive and ugly. Whereas God's design for sexual desire is to find its fulfillment in the relationship between a husband and a wife in marriage today, today it is actually separated from marriage. And today it is often even separated from love, even separated from relationships. Instead, today, sexual desire is more often finds its expression in ungodly lust. And it is this ungodly lust that leads people away, not just from the blessing of a loving and fulfilling relationship in marriage, but it leads us away 
from the blessing of our relationship with God himself. And that's why sexual sin is so serious. Not only does sexual sin injure and corrupt our relationships with other people, not only does sexual sin injure and corrupt our own body and our own spirit, but sexual sin injures and corrupts our relationship with God. And that's why the Bible speaks so strongly about sexual sin and the need to flee from it. We read together from Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 is 1 to 4, it says this. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Notice that to be imitators of God, that is to reflect God's image in true godliness and righteousness, there cannot even be a hint of sexual immorality among us. And it's not just the, the physical act of adultery, but all immorality, all impurity, all filthiness. Yes, even filthiness, even foolish talk, crude jokes are out of place. And then we also see what it says in verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is a covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the son of disobedience. God will punish the ungodly on account of these sins. And therefore, verse 7 says, Therefore do not become partners with them. And why not? Well, verse 9. Sorry, verse 8. For at one time you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Sexual sin can play no part in the life of the child of God. The world will live in sin. The world will embrace sin. The world will celebrate sin and be proud of their sin. But we are not the world. We are of Christ. We have been redeemed from the world and from the lusts of the world that we might be holy and blameless before Him. And that's why the sin of sexual immorality is so much more than the physical act of adultery. And this is why our Lord said in, in Matthew 5, He said, You have heard that it has been said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, of course, the command for sexual purity means that we must, be, we must absolutely keep our bodies pure inside and outside of marriage. Of course, it means that any physical interaction of a sexual nature outside of marriage is against God's law. Whether that's in a casual context 
or in a longer-term relationship. But it's more than that. Purity, true purity, is a purity that begins in the heart. And therefore, we need to guard our hearts. But how do you guard your heart? How do you guard your heart in a world that is saturated with sin? I think the problem that many of us have is that we think we're big, that we're adults, that we're mature, that we're strong. But are we really? Can we and do we really keep ourselves unstained from the world? Are you really strong enough to stand against the devil, the world, and your own old sinful flesh. How is that going with you? Where are you failing and falling? Where are you in danger of failing and falling with respect to your purity before God and before one another? In a world in which Netflix is at your fingertips, where you can find porn in your pocket on your phone, where casual meetups and hookups are accepted as normal, how are you keeping not just your body, but how are you keeping your heart and your mind pure? Because we're not big, are we? We're not really strong. And it's not as easy to remain pure and holy as we might think it is. Sexual sin is a stubborn sin. And almost all of us, men and women, will feel its pull. Yes, sometimes it will be stronger. Sometimes it will lessen. But for most of us, it always seems to be there. And that's why the Bible tells us to flee from sexual immorality. And that's why the Lord commands us to do everything to fight this sin and to put away anything that might entice us to unchastity and to ungodliness. And that's why Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, to tear it out and to, to throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to sin, to, to cut it off and to throw it away, it is better that you lose one of your members, one of your body parts, than that your whole body ends up in hell. But how do you do that? How do you pluck out your eye? How do you cut off your hand? What did the Lord Jesus Christ mean when he said this? First of all, it's not a physical cutting off. That's, that's been done in church history in years gone by. It was amongst the desert fathers who uh, were there in the time of the early church who, who chose to, to get away from all of society and, and end up in the, uh, the, the desert sands of, of Egypt and, and Arabia, uh, trying to live entirely on their own, blocked out from everybody else. And one of them, at least, also then they wanted to rip out his eyes to avoid lust. But that's not what Jesus meant. And not only that, it's, it doesn't work. In fact, since adultery begins in the heart, the removal of an eye, the removal of a hand, will not in and of itself remove the sin. 
But then what does Jesus mean? What it means is this. If your eye causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through that eye, then do what you can to remove that temptation to sin. Now in today's day and age, there's some obvious applications of this command. If you're using your phone, your camera, your apps, your computer, your TV for sin, or to be titillated by sin, to be attracted to it, then throw it away. Sometimes you might need to do that literally. Or to get rid of some of your subscriptions or whatever it might be. Sometimes you might need to physically remove the temptation from your life. Other times there may be different things that we should do. Such as keeping your phone out of your bedroom. Deleting certain apps or access to unholy websites. Installing a filter on your device or devices of your family members. And certainly also being held accountable to others. Your husband, your wife, your parents, or somebody in church. And then what about if your hand causes you to sin? More broadly, what, if, what about if the things that we do lead us to sin? Well, that could be the places you go, the people with whom you spend your time, the phone texts that you send, and so forth. If these things are leading you to sin or even enticing you to sin, you need to get them out of your life. Now, I trust that what I'm preaching here is nothing new. Many of you would have heard these and similar things before. But what are you doing about it? And what should you be doing about it? Just stop and think for a moment about your life and all that is going on. Are you guarding your heart and your life with the urgency that Christ commands? Are the things that you're watching, the places where you're going, or the person or the people you are seeing causing you to take your eyes off Jesus Christ, take your eyes off the gospel, and to play with sin in your mind? Are you in danger of sliding into sexual sin? Have you ever fallen into this sin? Are you committing this sin again and again and again? Let us be warned. Sexual sin is a stubborn sin. We must be on our guard. Look carefully. Ephesians 5, verse 15 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You see, the thing about all sin, especially sexual sin, is that it thrives in the dark. It thrives in secret. And the thing about all sin, especially sexual sin, is that it is hard to face it in the light and to speak about it with others. But it does need to be exposed to the light. There needs to be an openness, a transparency about this aspect of our lives as well. So we do need to talk about it. We need to talk about it at home. Perhaps between husband and wife. 
between parents and children, with others. And there are also times in which it will be appropriate to reach out to a brother or sister in the faith. Whether or not you have reason to be concerned or not, and say, how's it going? How's this going for you? Are you winning in your battle against sin? Is your heart pure? And then let's pray about it. Seeking God and pleading with Him that we might put our sin to death and live in holiness and godliness before Him. And that brings us to our second point, hope for holiness. But is there really any hope then for holiness? Will we win that battle against the flesh? Against the flesh? When the Lord Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. He taught something that is very important for us to listen to. In our fight against sin, we must put to death all that is evil and place those things that might incite us to sin. We need to put them out of our lives. Let us therefore take these words to heart and live by them. But at the same time, be warned that in and of itself, this is not enough. It is not enough to put an internet filter, such as covered eyes or whatever it is, on your computer. It is not enough to stay out of Northbridge late on a Friday night. It's not enough to avoid those places that might place you in a compromised position with someone who is not your husband or wife. All those things are good. You need to think about them. But they're not enough. Because simply not committing adultery is not all there is to say. As the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And that's the problem. Because adultery is ultimately a sin of the heart and not of the sexual organs. And so you can tear your eyes out But that won't kill your lust. You can cut off your hand, but that too is not going to kill your lust. Ultimately, it is not an external amputation that God Christ is calling for, but for a heart transformation. Remember what our Lord Jesus Christ had already said in his Sermon on the Mount. And remember how he had said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. And blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. And that is why the sin of adultery and all sexual sin causes us to cry out. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Wash me. Make me clean. And restore to me the joy of your salvation. But even as we pray this. And even as we plead to God for this, God will give us what we're asking for. Because there is no sin, not even sexual sin, that is outside of God's grace and His forgiveness. And our hope for holiness 
And our hope for change comes out of the grace and the forgiveness that God offers us in Jesus Christ. It comes out of the promise of a new heart, a clean heart, a heart that is made pure by His blood and by the Holy Spirit. And that's the context in which the Bible calls us again and again to holy living. That's also the context of the command for holiness and sexual purity in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, it actually begins with the words, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. It is because you are God's children. It is because you are redeemed. It is because you are saved in Jesus Christ. That's why you are now to live holy lives. And it's because of the gospel that we can live holy lives. Because, because walking in sin and walking in holiness, it's how we used to walk. But not anymore. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said earlier in Ephesians. Ephesians 2 verse 1 to 3. And you were dead in trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But then verse 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And therefore, chapter 5 says, because of this, that's why you must be imitators of God. That's why you are to reflect His image. The image in which you were created, both male and female. Therefore, live with Him in holiness and in godliness. That then is how we must live. And that's what gives us hope for holiness. You know, the problem with lust, the problem with sexual immorality, is that it takes our eyes off Jesus Christ. And when our eyes drift away from Him, our hearts grow cold. And it is then that the lusts of the flesh return. And so our hope for holiness is not simply found in running away from that sin and pushing it away and pushing it away. Oh, we do that. But at the very same time, our hope for holiness must be in a running to Jesus Christ. It is in the beauty of Christ that we see the ugliness of sin. It is in the beauty of Christ that our desires will be transformed. But to see the beauty, we do need to be changed. To see the beauty of Christ, we need a new heart. Because by nature, our old nature, we do not want Christ, nor do we find Him attractive. Do you remember how our Lord Jesus Christ was described in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2? For He grew up like a tender plant, like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. Jesus Christ 
with all the beauty of God in bodily form, dwelt among us. But when he came to his own people, his own people esteemed him not. And that's the problem. For the unregenerate person, for those who are still in their sin, the beauty of Jesus Christ is hidden. And they do not see it. But that's not us, is it? Although it is true, Isaiah 53 verse 3 goes on, it is true that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one with whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Nevertheless, we see Jesus and we believe what it says in verse 5, that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. And through God's Holy Spirit, we see Jesus Christ for who he really is. Through God's Holy Spirit, we see Christ. And in Jesus Christ, we gaze upon the beauty of God. And the more we gaze upon Him, and the more our hearts are filled with His goodness, with His beauty, then the more we're going to turn away from the filth of this world and from the sinful desires of our own heart. And the more we will be filled with Him. And that gives us hope for holiness. Because then we will live in the position for which we were created. Then we will know what it means to be created male and female in the image of God. Then we will experience desire, even sexual desire, in the way that God had created it. And then we'll find our fullness and our contentment in Him. And then we will know what it means to rightly know Him. To heartily love Him. To live with Him in eternal blessedness. To praise and glorify Him. Amen. Well, let's respond and sing together from Psalm 16, verse 4 and 5.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the beauty that is ours in Jesus Christ. Yes, one thing have I asked of the Lord, and that I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Grant, Lord, that we might hunger and thirst for Christ more and more. Grant, indeed, that we might see in Christ the beauty that is perfect. And Lord, as we turn our eyes more upon Jesus, we pray that we might also experience within our own selves a weakening, a lessening of those stubborn sins. Also, the sins of the seventh commandment. Grant a Heavenly Father that in this way, we will not just keep on yearning back to these things, but that our hearts might be filled in Christ. And so, Father, we pray that we might also recognize then the beauty of sexual desire in the context for which it was, it was created. And so, Lord, we do pray also that you grant your blessing upon the marriages amongst us. We pray, Heavenly Father, that in marriages also there may be a delighting in the wife of one's youth, of one's husband, of her youth, a delighting in one another and a recognition that we belong to one another. Father, we do know also that brokenness of this life also does affect the marriage relationship. And Father, where there is indeed brokenness, if it's separation and divorce, we do pray also that where that is on account of sin, that that sin may be repented of. But there might also be the assurance of forgiveness. But Father, we also do pray that also in these things, that we might look for cleansing and renewing Christ. But Father, we also do pray for those where there is tension in marriage. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that there might be for both a husband and wife a recognition of the need to seek out that first love, which is Christ. And that together they might look to Him. And Lord, we pray that this way too, they might also then look back to their own relationships, yes, even when there are difficulties and where there's hardship and trouble and where it seems like there's no end to them, that they might also then look upon one another with eyes that are filled with the love of Christ. Father, we pray for, for those who are single amongst us, whether that is widowed or those who are older, who have previously been married or those who have never been married and Father we do pray that you'll bless them too there are joys in singleness also there are blessings and for some it is indeed a gift there are also challenges Lord disappointments the struggles and where that is the case Lord we also pray 
that as the body of Christ we might be a support to one another. We pray also for the young adults and the teenagers of our congregation. We pray, Heavenly Father, that, that they will keep themselves pure and holy in a world that is saturated with ungodliness, where it is everywhere we turn. It's not even as if you have to seek, seek it out. We pray, Heavenly Father, that there may be a growing desire, yes, a hunger for Christ and to be filled in Him. And so, Lord, we pray that you'll bless them. Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you for those things which we could experience this day as well. Continue to bless us, we pray. Also, the remainder of this Sunday, this day of rest. And bless us too in the week that lies ahead. That we may walk with you. That we may love you. And that we may praise you. Forgive our sins, we pray. And hear us in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. We have the opportunity to give you a thank offerings to the Lord. We have the collection this afternoon for the work of mission in PNG. But following this, let's sing our final song for the service, Psalm 73, verse 8 and 9.
to the Lord to receive his blessing and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. <laughs>